combat de combat. Les ordres se succèdent. Le vice-amiral Jean Soul, commandant l'escadre française, a évidemment rejeté les revendications des Anglais. Mais avant même d'avoir reçu la réponse de l'amiral français, les Anglais ouvrent les hostilités en faisant miner l'entrée de la rade par leurs avions. Les vaisseaux de bataille français... The French Navy, known as the Marine Nationale, was the fourth largest in the world when France declared war on Adolf Hitler's Germany in 1939. The Navy had only one aircraft carrier, but was building modern battleships, in particular the superb Richelieu class. French cruisers designed to contend with quick Italian designs were flawed vessels that traded armor for speed. France, however, did have some of the best destroyers. In addition, French sailors were well-trained, they were also well-fed and even provided wine as part of their rations. Morale was generally high. The naval high command, though, was dominated by Catholics and conservatives, including royalists. For these men, France's heyday was the era of King Louis XIV, when the French Navy was the envy of Europe. The French Navy performed its duties well in the opening months of World War II. Relations with the British were good, although not great, and ships from both fleets worked together in many early operations. Unfortunately, and at no fault of the fleet, France fell in 1940. The French fleet ably assisted in the evacuation of Dunkirk and other posts, but could do no more. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was desperate to keep France in the war. Churchill came from a powerful British family and had a chaotic career. He was intelligent and mercurial, and often as wrong as he was right. He had served as first sea lord during World War I. Although he managed to usher in a major building program, his Gallipoli scheme was a disaster. He was a committed imperialist. He denounced both Gandhi and Hitler, but had some admiration for Benito Mussolini. Churchill owed his current standing to his forceful denouncements of Hitler. As events would prove, he was, by turns, ruthless, creative, inspiring, and very stubborn. Churchill tried to get more troops and aircraft sent to France, but the Royal Air Force refused. This led to increased feelings in France that they were being left to their fate. Churchill sent what troops he could spare and offered a union between the nations. Churchill's offer moved French Prime Minister Paul Reynoux and to declare that France would fight to the last. However, on June 17th, Marshal Philippe Pétain, Admiral Francois Darlon, Pierre Laval, and other politicians took over the government. Many were openly fascist in their outlook and saw communism as a bigger threat than Nazism. They opened negotiations with Germany and Italy to end hostilities. The new conservative clique that ruled France had an anglophobic mindset. Darlon, head of the French Navy, was openly caustic in his relationships with the British. One of his ancestors had died at Trafalgar. To be fair, Darlon had also no love for Germany, and in the 1930s had requested advanced warship designs specifically to counter new German warships. He toyed with bringing the whole fleet over to the British, but instead on June 12th simply promised Churchill the fleet would never be handed over. Considering his Anglophobia, Churchill was wary of Darlon's promises and later called him a dangerous, bitter, ambitious man. Darlon was also proud, willful, mercurial, and tended to promote cronies. He showed a tendency to side with whatever political faction was ascendant. He was less a fascist like Pétain and more of an opportunist. As the Germans swept over France, French warships left for other ports. A few made for Plymouth and Portsmouth in Britain, the recently completed Richelieu sailed from Brest to Casablanca on June 18th, followed the next day by the partially completed battleship Jean Barre, based in Saint-Nazaire. 
The French Navy was dispersed, with warships in the Caribbean, Indochina, West Africa, Egypt, Britain, but mostly in North Africa. The French Navy considered continuing the war from the colonies. César Compinchi, the French naval minister, was among those calling for continued war. He ran to Casablanca only to be arrested before he could organize an opposition force. On June 22nd, the Germans demanded that the French fleet be demobilized, with the condition that some ships could be left free for the safeguard of the French interests in the colonial empire. At Italian suggestion, the armistice terms were amended to permit the French fleet to stay temporarily in North African ports, where they might be seized by Italian troops from Libya. That same day, the British stopped French ships in Britain from leaving for North Africa. British Ambassador Ronald Campbell and Naval Attaché Captain Pleidel Bouvary left France's interim capital at Bordeaux, signaling that Britain did not approve of the armistice. The British continued to press for the French to hand over the fleet. However, the French feared that sending ships to Britain would only provoke Germany to restart the war. On June 25th, peace was declared, with a clause stating that French warships were to be turned over to German and Italian ports to be demilitarized. Britain feared that instead the ships would be taken. Darlan, for his part, refused to carry out the order. The British, though, suspected him of treachery. Hitler did not have the manpower to fully staff the French fleet. Instead, the British thought the French capital ships could be converted to German use in two months and in three months if they were turned over to Italy. Both were overly optimistic assessments. However, Hitler believed that if he tried to take the ships, they would flee to the British. In addition, the French used the fleet and the possibility of its rejoining the Allies as a bargaining counter against the Germans to maintain the armistice and control over French North Africa. In the end, Hitler did not want the French fleet, seeing it as more trouble than it was worth. Churchill, failing to see Hitler's true intentions, decided the French fleet must be turned over to Britain, scuttled and demobilized under British observation, or sunk. Churchill also thought ruthless action would impress both the Americans and the Conservative Party in Britain. Churchill's position in the government was weak, and a show of force would impress them. In addition, Francophobia and anger at French capitulation made the French unsympathetic in government circles. The British Admiralty was against an attack on the French fleet, since France could be provoked into declaring war on Britain. In addition, on June 18th, Charles de Gaulle invited Frenchmen to join the Free French cause. On June 24th, he called on Frenchmen in the colonies to defect. A provisional French National Committee and a French Volunteer Legion were to be formed in the United Kingdom. However, an attack on the fleet would damage free French prospects of recruiting soldiers, sailors, and colonies. Both Chad and French Somaliland were openly opposed to the armistice, and such sentiments could only spread to other colonies if cultivated. Churchill decided the French Navy was more important than free France. He ordered Operation Catapult. The main target was the French fleet at Mers El Kebir in Algeria. On June 24th, Admiral Dudley North, commanding the North Atlantic Station, visited Vice Admiral Marcel Bruno Jean Soule, the French fleet commander at Mers El Kebir. Jean Soule was distraught and almost cried when he thought of France's defeat. He stated that his ships would remain French. There was a general British belief that the junior French officers wanted to continue the fight but the leadership hobbled by Anglophobia and fascist sympathies did not. Jean Soule was the exception. He was a Protestant, and he spoke English well and was himself an Anglophile. He commanded France's Force de Rade, which for a time included British ships such as the battlecruiser Hood. 
As such, he did not think the British would attack him. He was considered one of France's best commanders, although he could be touchy. Jean Soul told North he would not disobey his government because it could restart a war with Germany. Yet by meeting the British, he showed he was more than open to discussion. By contrast, on June 25th, General Charles Nagas, who wanted to continue the fight, flatly refused to even see General Jean Gort and Duff Cooper, the Minister of Information. If any admiral might defect, Jean Soul seemed to be the man. After North's mission, Force H was formed in Gibraltar. Nominally, the force would come under the command of Vice Admiral Andrew Cunningham. He openly opposed attacking French ships, so Force H came under direct command of the Navy High Command and therefore Churchill. Force H's operational control will be left to Vice Admiral Sir James F. Somerville. He was a technical expert, having worked on radios before World War I and radar before World War II. He gained notoriety for helping organize the Dunkirk evacuation. Despite old age and a bout of tuberculosis, he stayed in shape and was energetic. He was known as charismatic, funny, flexible, but also honest, a trait that got him into trouble with Churchill. For his part, Churchill told Somerville, you are charged with one of the most disagreeable and difficult tasks that a British admiral has ever been faced with. On June 30th, Somerville arrived in Gibraltar and planned Operation Catapult with his officers. Neither Somerville nor his officers were excited about the operation. Somerville wanted to amend the plan, and he proposed that the French fleet be permitted to put to sea where they would be captured by Force H in a way that maintained some sense of honor for France. Back in Britain, First Sea Lord Admiral Dudley Pound wanted to give the French the option of going to the Caribbean or disarming in port. Churchill, now with the full backing of his cabinet, opposed such measures. To speak with Jean Soule, Somerville selected Captain Cedric S. Holland called Hooky because of his large nose. He was commander of the aircraft carrier Ark Royal. Holland had recently been naval attaché in Paris. He spoke French fluently and was a confirmed Francophile. He knew Jean Soule, but they were only professional acquaintances. Somerville was adamant about force being a last resort. After speaking with officers who had worked with the French, Somerville wrote, the threat of force would antagonize them immediately, and they might even be prepared to fight rather than give way. Somerville suggested that his envoy arrive before the fleet so as not to antagonize the French, but that too was refused. Force H contained one carrier, two battleships, one battlecruiser, two cruisers, and 11 destroyers. The battlecruiser was the Hood. It was at that time the largest warship in the world, and although lightly armored, it had a very heavy armament. In addition, the older and slower battleships Valiant and Resolution were on hand and each had impressive guns. The cruisers were the light vessels Arethusa and Enterprise. Lastly, the aircraft carrier Ark Royal, Britain's best vessel of its type, was on hand, making Operation Catapult one of the first offensive uses of a carrier. In addition, the submarines Proteus and Pandora were ordered to patrol off Oran and Algiers. The French fleet at Mers el Kebir was also large. It consisted of one seaplane carrier, two battleships, two battlecruisers, and six destroyers. The battleships were the Provence and the Bretagne, old World War I veterans that had not been fully modernized. Of more importance was the battlecruisers Dunkirk and Strasbourg. Both were fast and modern ships. As Force H prepared to attack, the Italian Navy made its only contribution to the battle when one of their submarines fired on the destroyer Vortigern. The torpedo exploded before detonation. 
Otherwise, the Italian fleet was too busy guarding convoys to Libya. Force H left Gibraltar on July 3rd, with Holland going ahead on board the destroyer Foxhound. Holland signaled the French, The British Navy hopes that their proposals will enable you and the valiant and glorious French Navy to be by our side, and the circumstances in your ships would remain yours, and no one need have any anxiety for the future. A British fleet is at sea off Oran, waiting to welcome you. Foxhound entered Mers el Kebir, but Jean Soule refused to confer with Holland, since he was junior in rank. Jean Soule took it as a snub, and instead sent Lieutenant Bernard Dufin to meet with Holland. Jean Soule also ordered Foxhound out of the port. Foxhound left, but Holland landed anyway, and eventually met with Jean Soule on board Dunkirk. Holland handed over this message written by the British government, which read, We are determined to on till the end, thee and if we win, as we think we shall, we shall never forget that France was our ally, and that our interests are the same as hers, and that our common enemy is Germany. Should we conquer, we solemnly declare that we shall restore a greatness and territory of France. For this purpose, we must be sure that the best ships of the French Navy will also not be used against us by the common foe. Churchill's ultimatum offered the French three options. To join forces with the Royal Navy, to be disarmed in the Caribbean or America by the British, or to scuttle the fleet. All other results would lead to violence. Jean Soule handed Holland only a penciled reply, using no official paper. He said the ships would never be turned over to the Axis and stated that French warships will be defended by force. Meanwhile, French warships were readied for battle but remained docked. As the two men spoke, the bulk of Force H arrived and Holland left to talk with Somerville. The port was effectively blockaded. Mines were laid by the British aircraft. Somerville thought a fight was imminent, but Jean Soule requested another meeting with Holland and returned in the afternoon. Jean Soule notified Darlon, but he did not at this time mention the American option. Jean Soule's message reached the French chief of staff Admiral Maurice Lelouch. At about noon, Darlan was absent, and Lelouch, a confirmed fascist, ordered Jean Soule to prepare for battle. He also ordered the fleet at Algiers to come to Jean Soule's aid. The moves alarmed the British. Somerville was told to settle matters quickly or you will have reinforcements to deal with. Jean Soule's meeting was tense. He was angry and indignant over the mining of the entrance, and restated that he would not comply and added that any attack would unite the French Navy against the British. Jean Soule then showed Holland Darlan's orders from June 24th, which allowed Jean Soule to run his ships to America or Martinique in the Caribbean if anyone tried to take the ships. The last meeting prompted Somerville to signal Jean Soule, If none of the British proposals are acceptable by 5.30 p.m., it will be necessary to sink your ships. The final statement from Jean Soule read, cannot break armistice, will not turn over ships in the process of demilitarization. Holland, still talking with Jean Soule, was informed that he must leave as the British intended to open fire. As Holland left Dunkirk, he saluted the French flag and began to cry. As he passed the Britannia, the officer of the watch saluted him. Minutes later, the British opened fire.
day was clear and perfect for shooting. British fire commenced from 17,500 yards, or nearly 10 miles. The first salvos set the docks on fire. The French were unprepared, with Dunkirk and Strasbourg unable to return fire for several minutes. The third salvo blew up the Britannia, which was lifted out of the harbor. There was another explosion as the stern of the destroyer Magador was blown off by a 15-inch shell. The explosions filled the air with smoke, which made it hard for the French to fire with any accuracy. Dunkirk managed to fire 40 rounds at the hood before being put out of action. In the firing, she suffered a destroyed gun turret, while the main generator and the ship's hydraulic system were knocked out. The ship caught fire and was beached to prevent it from sinking. Provence succeeded in getting underway and also opened fire, but was herself badly damaged, burst into flames, and ran aground to avoid sinking. After 30 minutes, French warship fire slackened. French signals begged Somerville to cease fire, and at 6.10 p.m. he stopped to give the French time to evacuate their burning ships. Somerville signaled, Unless I see your ship sinking, I shall open fire again. Meanwhile, the French shore batteries kept up a steady fire that, while inaccurate, forced the British destroyers back. Through the smoke, Strasbourg and destroyers Volta and La Terrablia passed their sinking brothers, avoided the mines, and broke out for the ocean. Arc Royal sent aircraft to attack Strasbourg, while cruiser destroyers gave chase. The trio escaped and joined the French ships leaving Algiers. Night was falling, and the French had the edge in lighter vessels, so Somerville gave up the pursuit. Strasbourg's run was among the most daring maneuvers of the war, and a bright spot in an otherwise terrible day for the French Navy. During the fighting, 1,297 Frenchmen were killed or missing, with 354 wounded. Nearly 1,000 of those were on board the Britannia. And by contrast, only seven British aircraft were shot down, but all men except for two were saved. Thick fog on the morning of July 4th grounded British aircraft. That same morning, Jean Soule informed Somerville that his ships were damaged and that he was moving his crews to shore. Somerville thought this was enough and turned back to Gibraltar. He was nervous about attacks from submarines and was never really that excited about the operation. He was relieved to be given a reasonable chance to leave. Jean Soule, meanwhile, tried to save his undamaged ships. Later that day, the seaplane tender Commandant Tess fled. Proteus nearly attacked the ship, but failed to get into position. The destroyers Lynx and Tigre also escaped. Somerville received orders to only attack the French if they fired first, signaling that Operation Catapult was winding down. The orders only slowly got to the submarines. On July 4th, Pandora, still not aware that hostilities were ending, sank the escort ship Rigaud de Jeannoy. Pandora was hunted until it returned to Gibraltar on July 7th. The Admiralty expressed regret to the French embassy for the sinking. Force H was supposed to go attack Dakar, but instead it was prepared for Operation Lever, with the goal of sinking Dunkirk. Force H would not have resolution on this run. On July 5th, Force H set sail again, hoping to destroy Dunkirk without costing more French lives. British aircraft attacked on July 6th. Dunkirk was taken by surprise and suffered several torpedo hits. A torpedo hit hit the patrol boat Terre Neuve, which was of full depth charges and moored alongside the Dunkirk. Terre Neuve quickly sank and the depth charges went off, causing serious damage to Dunkirk. The ship was of action until 1942. Throughout the attack, French and British fighters battled it out, 
but neither side lost aircraft as they generally held back. The sad fate of the French fleet at Merzel Kebir was not mirrored elsewhere. French ships in Plymouth and Portsmouth were boarded on the night of July 3, 1940. The crew of the Surcouf, the largest submarine in the world, resisted, and three British sailors were killed as well as one Frenchman. Otherwise, the ships were seized without fatalities. The French squadron in Alexandria, including the battleship Lorraine, four cruisers and three destroyers were neutralized after long negotiations between Cunningham and Vice Admiral René-Emile Godfroy. Churchill actually opposed Cunningham's negotiations, but he was all but ignored, and Churchill did not press the issue after Mayor's El Kebir. Battleship Jean Bar was at Casablanca, and the Richelieu was at Dakar. The incomplete Jean Bar was ignored, but Richelieu, at that time the best battleship in the world, was deemed a target. On July 7th, depth charges were placed under the ship by British motorboats, but failed to explode. However, when aircraft from the carrier Hermes attacked on July 8th, one of their torpedoes set off the charges, causing major damage to Richelieu. Darlan ordered the French fleet to attack Royal Navy ships wherever possible. Peyton and his foreign minister, Paul Baudouin, ignored the order the next day. Baudouin said, The attack on our fleet is one thing, war is another. Yet reprisals were ordered. The French Air Force raided Gibraltar, bombing the port on July 5th, but their accuracy was off and no damage was done. In early June 1940, 13,500 British civilians who had been evacuated from Gibraltar to Casablanca were expelled at the point of the bayonet. Addressing his sailors during memorial service for the dead, Jean Soule bitterly told his men, If there is a stain on a flag today, it is certainly not on yours. Somerville agreed. He later commented that the action at Merzel Kebir was the biggest political blunder of modern times and will rouse the whole world against us. We all feel thoroughly ashamed. Morale in both fleets was low after the battle. With the benefit of hindsight, it is clear that Jean Soule was not ready and did not think the British would actually attack. Although the British accused him of delaying negotiations to prepare his men for battle, his fleet's unpreparedness shows that he did not think Somerville would fire. Jean Soule's gravest error was not talking to Holland right away. Jean Soule, though, never wrote about the battle, and his intentions are still debated. Although promoted to full admiral, he was not fully trusted by the new French government and retired in October 1942. Somerville's career was not enhanced by Marzel Kebir. He was blamed for letting Strasbourg get away. To his wife, he wrote, I shouldn't be surprised if I was relieved forthwith. I don't mind because it was an absolutely bloody business. The truth is, my heart wasn't in it. Churchill later relieved him after he failed to chase the Italians at Cape Spartavento, but he stayed in command and played a major role in the sinking of the Bismarck. He was sent to command naval forces in the Indian Ocean in 1942. The aftermath of the attack on Mares El Kebir was complicated, varied, and is debated to this day. American newspapers and politicians were impressed by British ruthlessness. On the 4th of July, President Franklin Roosevelt told the French ambassador, René Saint-Contin, that he would not have done the same. Greece, Yugoslavia, and Turkey also approved, although to be fair, each likely saw an advantage in reduced French naval power in the Mediterranean Sea. Churchill's position in the government was strengthened. Weeks later, Churchill made a long speech in the House of Commons on the heroism of men on both sides describing it as a melancholy action. There were tears in his eyes, and members in both parties cheered. Churchill later wrote, This was the most hateful decision, the most unnatural and painful in which I have ever been concerned.
In the end, the Battle of Britain was more important in solidifying Churchill's position, just as the U-boat war was more decisive in bringing America closer to the British. The negative consequences of the attack were much more numerous than a few diplomatic approvals and had a lasting effect on the war. De Gaulle was angered by the attack. On June 28th, he was recognized the leader of Free France, but his relations with Churchill were strained. The attack also made recruitment difficult. Although some officers, and particularly pilots, did join Free France, Navy recruitment was anemic. Emile Musselet was the only French admiral to join de Gaulle. Some 30,000 French soldiers and sailors in Britain left to return to Vichy, France. An estimated 90% of all French sailors in Britain left. Only enough remained to fit out the destroyer Le Triomphant. In Germany, Hitler and his propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, promoted anti-British rage in occupied France. Posters showed drowning French sailors. One poster even depicted Churchill grinning over a French cemetery. Both Dunkirk and Mers el Kebir were used as evidence of British treachery. On July 10th, Vichy France was formally created. The attack strengthened the hand of the new French fascist government, which stoked Anglophobia. Relations with Britain were severed. The French Navy rallied behind the Vichy regime while also taking pride in their achievements in the first years of the war. Hitler was so impressed by French resolve that he permitted Vichy France to maintain its remaining ships to defend the colonies. French officers suspected of republicanism and anglophobia were removed. The navy became the staunchest allies and defenders of the Vichy regime. By 1941, Darlan was arguing that Vichy France should formally join the Axis. In September 1940, the British attacked Dakar. This time, the French were better prepared to fight. Although Richelieu took more damage and two submarines were sunk, the attack failed, with resolution being crippled. De Gaulle said he did not want to shed the blood of Frenchmen for Frenchmen and called off the attack. On September 24th and 25th, Vichy France carried out major air raids on Gibraltar and returned for Dakar. Only Chad and French Polynesia went over to free France without bloodshed. Gabon, New Caledonia, Madagascar, French Guiana, Martinique, French Somaliland, and Syria each had to be taken by force. The attack at Mers el Kebir ensured that until 1942 the French stayed neutral but friendly to the Axis. Dakar was even used by Germany as a minor U-boat base. By November 1942, things had changed. Pétain was disillusioned with Germany. The Vichy government was unpopular. The Allied invasion of North Africa led to a quick armistice, with Darlan handing over French troops and ships to the Allies. Darlan was then murdered by a French royalist, and his passing was celebrated by some British commanders. Meanwhile, free French forces, which had already fought well with the British in Libya, were newly bolstered by formerly Vichy troops. In November 1942, the Germans launched Case Anton and invaded Vichy France. On November 27th, they tried to capture the French fleet. The ships could have set sail for the Allied ports. Sailors chanted, Long live de Gaulle, set sail! However, Vice Admiral Jean de la Borde scuttled the fleet. One battleship, two battle cruisers, seven cruisers, 15 destroyers, 13 torpedo boats, 12 submarines, and 76 other ships were destroyed. Only a few submarines escaped to join the Allies. Among the ships lost were the survivors of Mares El Kebir, Provence, Dunkirk, Strasbourg, Commandant Test, and the destroyers Mogador, Volta, Cursant, Lynx, and the Tigre. Only the La Terrible, 
which was not at Toulon, survived to the end of the war. The ship fought in the Allied fleet and was in service until being scrapped in 1962. The Toulon scuttling was bitter proof that there had never been a question of French ships ending up in German hands. Indeed, the French fleet might end up in Allied hands if not for the attacks which sowed discord and bitterness between former friends. The British attack at Merzel Kebir was an unnecessary betrayal and a strategic blunder. The Free French Army played a major role in the Tunisian and Italian campaigns and the liberation of Western Europe, being the first units to reach the Rhine River. The Navy, though, was never more than a support for the Allies. Few French ships survived the Vichy French regime. The Navy defended convoys and supported the landings in Italy and France, but most of France's fleet had been lost by the most inglorious of means, either sunk by former friends or scuttled in port. Du port après le bombardement. 